0: Hello, and welcome. I'm Stephanie K. Baker-Jones, but you can call me KB. I've been engaged in living over 60 years, and I feel compelled to teach what I've learned in order to be a blessing to others. I'm a Black American, a retired Army nurse, educator, author, mother, grandmother, etc. I'm an artist, entrepreneur, and health ministry leader. There are so many things that I want to talk about that I can't narrow it down to a single topic or industry. Rest assured that you will be educated and entertained. Welcome to KB's World. Today, we're continuing our guided tour of Black American artistry. One of the best parts about these accounts of talented Black Americans is that I get to see myself in them, and it gives me hope and inspires me to do more. Aaron Douglas was born in 1899, which was a mere 34 years after the abolition of slavery. He was born in Topeka, Kansas, to his parents, Aaron Douglas Sr., who was a baker of specialty breads, and his mother, Elizabeth Douglas, who was a homemaker and a passionate amateur landscape painter. Aaron had many siblings, you know, brothers and sisters, but I couldn't really get a number anywhere. Uh, What I was able to discover was that he made himself noticeable with his eagerness for knowledge, and, you know, looking for new horizons to tackle. We take the story up at about 1910 when he's 11 years old. Aaron was attending uh, one of Topeka's segregated schools where he was an avid reader. He loved to read and demonstrated his willingness to tackle tough topics like Shakespeare and Emerson. When other students his same age and in the same grade were trying to get outside to go play or even sometimes go to work. By the time he was 15, around 1914, he was telling his parents that he was uh, ready to go to college and, and get a degree, which of course his parents were very supportive about, but they knew that they wouldn't be able to offer him any financial assistance. But he didn't let this deter him. He actually left home, and uh, headed to Detroit, Michigan in search of work because they had heard, uh, or the word on the street was, that there would be work there on assembly lines uh, due to the automotive industry. So he was successful. He he got there, and he was able to get himself a job, at the time considered a bottom-of-the-ladder laborer, but uh, it was enough to keep him going and, and get him started. Now he also uh, painted in his off time, which of course makes sense, right? He's painting circumstances, his you know, people in his area, his neighborhood, um, just different things that he was looking at. And he was able to take his drawings and show individuals at the college, at admissions department of the University of Nebraska. He took his drawings that he was doing in his spare time to the university and showed them to him and said, hey, I think I would benefit from going to college. Can I get in the school? And they were like, oh, sure, okay, yeah. I mean, they were that good. So he was allowed to get in the school without any transcripts of any of his previous education. Now, he was in college, and so over the next eight years, he worked on his craft, right? And he took traditional European-influenced books, right, because that's what you see in the school, and he started taking his talents and his uh, artistic uh, creativity to start looking at politics because he's getting that age. And, of course, he's reading the works of W.E.B. Du Bois, right? Right. And of course, there's a growing number of African-American writers at that time confronting the reality of race in America, which, you know, seems to be a constant for people of color. So at the time, the conversation was hints, indirect statements, things talking about poverty, oppression, and struggle for freedom and equity. And of course, if he's living in those times, that Stuff is going to seep into his consciousness and uh, naturally show up in his artwork. This is the circumstance. He's now 23 years old, but he's about to get loose because he has earned a bachelor's degree in fine arts. And he also began uh, teaching uh, at the high school in Kansas City, Missouri. Now, this is 23 years old, okay? Now, he loved it. He, he discovered that he really had a passion and a gift for teaching. And he loved teaching. And the, the students loved him, right? He was good at it. But he had a sense that if he settled for life as a teacher, that he would not live up to his potential, which, of course, we know was, in fact, the case. But he had a sense that if I stay here as much as I enjoy this, I won't be able to really blossom and give the world what I have to offer. And so he didn't want to cut off his own potential as an artist. Life goes on. He's now 26 years old, and he's kind of at another impasse, right, another uh, place. It's 1925, and he decided, okay, you know, I think I need to go uh, somewhere else. I need to go do something else. He decided to go to uh, New York City. Uh, and so he moved to Harlem, <laughs> right? So, Which, of course, was a city that he heard was entirely black and had black people in charge. So, of course, that's where he wanted to go, right? In 26, that's where I'm going. And he was on track to pursue his dreams as a working artist because we know that Harlem was a hub of uh, creativity. And with his already positive experience with his transcripts or his uh, paintings or his artwork, he was uh, very optimistic uh, when he got there and was in need of a job. So he took his portfolio to the office of Crisis Magazine. Remember, that's the magazine, the journal of the National Association of, for the Advancement of Colored People, which just happened to be edited by. W.E.B. Du Bois. Oh, hey! How fortunate, right? The person that I'm listening to and and beginning to um, uh, align with uh, politically uh, just happens to be the um, editor of this magazine that I'm now applying to. And of course, Mr. Du Bois was impressed by our Aaron's talent and his initiative. You know, the fact that he came and said, hey, look at my paintings, look at my work, and can I get a job here? So uh, Mr. Dubois uh, hired him for the only position that was available that was the mailroom clerk. But uh, that's another point that Aaron was like, I'll take whatever job is available, because he knew and they did make an agreement between them that there would be opportunities to provide his illustrations for the magazine. So no, he didn't walk in as a, you know, top-level illustrator. He took a job in the mailroom, knowing that he would get an opportunity to provide or showcase his talent. So, with Harlem of course being a, you know, the vibrant creative center of the world that it was in the 1920s with black novelists and poets and Actors and photographers all participating in creative expression, creative output. There was European artists that wanted to come to Harlem to sketch or do whatever. And um, one of the German modernists uh, by the name of Winold Rees came to Harlem and became a mentor to Aaron. So now Aaron is hanging out with another artist, painter, and so he's actually getting techniques because now Mr. Reese is giving him techniques and theories of current European art, right, like uh, modernism and cubism that he would not have gotten in school. And uh, this man, person, peer, is also encouraging Aaron to look more into his African ancestry, so he does that. He embraces his African ancestry, and um, now his work, of course, begins to appear or is looked for, or uh, by people who are writing books that fit the topic, right? So his illustrations started appearing in uh, books uh, alongside those of Mr. Reese. So his mentor is also helping to promote his work. And the writer's name is Alan Locke. And Alan Locke had written what uh, people of that time believed was the all-encompassing book on African-American culture called The New Negro. So Alan was a, a writer, philosopher, educator, and a patron of the arts. And he was actually the first African-American Rhodes Scholar and the acknowledged dean of the Harlem Renaissance. Now Aaron's work is illustrating Dr. Locke's books because Aaron was able to blend tradition with modern techniques, right? Um, And it was a perfect match for Locke's works whether it was the book or his essay, which I uh, called The Legacy of the Ancestral Arts. <laughs> At this point, uh, Dubois was like, hey, wow, you know, uh, this guy is, is really talented. He decided, he, he recognized that uh, Aaron's art uh, would, of course, encourage interest in the articles uh, that are featured in the magazine, the Crisis Magazine. Especially the essay, excuse me, on uh, African American life. So here we are now, 1926, 27 years old. So no, now that he's he's earned his um, moderate success, right? He's pretty comfortable. He felt like at this point he could he could get married. So he married uh, Alta Sawyer, Alta, uh, who they had been courting for some time. So. That, I think that's kind of sweet, that obviously he's been working up to getting to a point where, okay, I'm comfortable now, now I'm going to ask you to marry me. I'm bringing in the money on a consistent basis. And he was, and, and they, yeah, it was, it's, it's a cool thing. And this is 27, he's 27 years old. But of course, you know, we're living life. So 1927, now that he's 28, he actually was made the director of a crisis, right? The art director uh, of the crisis of the magazine, right? So from the mailroom to the art director uh, and his illustrations were now uh, regularly gracing the cover of the magazine. So his style, his African-inspired geometric designs um, combined with iconic and strong black figures sort of ignited the imagination of the Harlem Renaissance. The movement that he was involved was centered on literature, but in each new work, Aaron was able to showcase a sense of pride and inner strength among Black people that was plain to see. So I hope you guys take a look at these works. Because at the height of the Harlem Renaissance, Aaron illustrated books for prominent writers like Langston Hughes, County Cullen. Claude McKay, James Weldon Johnson, and Wallace Thurman. Now, these names should be familiar, and you should check them out. So now, 1928, he's 29 years old, okay? He's been working hard, right? He's been producing uh, work. He's been putting in work. And now, he's sort of getting some of the payback for his work. He gets a fellowship in Pennsylvania one year. And after that, he gets a fellowship to Paris. And of course, his wife went, went with him, Alta, when they came back. And since they had been inspired in France by the salon atmosphere, they opened their Harlem home for friends and peers on a regular basis. So the French salon was a a gathering of selected people to learn from an expert about a subject. It could be a historian or a philosopher or a composer, and they would discuss ideas and events of the time and connect with people in society. Salons met regularly, and each salon created its own sort of personality and subject of interest. So when they got back from France, they would do this in their home in Harlem. You know, imagine how fun that would be, right? So their home, again, was a was a center of energy, creative energy. And their home became chief gathering point for the artistic and cultural elite of the Renaissance, right? That was like a happening spot, his place. So now, again, it's tough, but he, you know, God covers Certain people, <laughs> so because 1929, he's 30 years old. The Great Depression, and we know that the Great Depression took a toll, heavy toll, uh, on New York and Harlem. Right, uh, was going to take a harder hit. So we know that people got hit, and and who has money to really pay for art and a lot of the stuff that he was doing, or a lot of things that people were doing as far as fighting, racism, and, and, you know, uh, those kinds of problems kind of died down, too, because you may not have the energy to fight for equity when survival is the priority. Um, He was blessed because, uh, with steady work, uh, when, again, work was lean for a lot of people. Uh, In 1930, uh, at 31, uh, which, of course, was just the next year, so stuff was still uh, really uh, tough, uh, he was actually commissioned to paint a memorial library at Fisk University in Nashville. So Douglas was blessed as he had uh, you know steady work during his lean time because a lot of people didn't have work. He had some large commissions for some notable frescoes and murals for the Crowvath Memorial Library at Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee. What is a fresco? Fresco is a painting done rapidly in watercolor on wet plaster on a wall or a ceiling so that colors penetrate the plaster and become fixed as it dries. And of course, murals are uh, you know, a painting or other work of art executed directly on a wall. So we're, you know time marches on, we're now at 32 years old And this is a a wonderful thing, it's 1931, and he moved, right, he and his wife moved to uh, the Sugar Hill area of Harlem, right, which was considered a popular place for wealthy African-Americans to live during the Harlem Renaissance, in which, of course, he was a central figure at this point. Uh, He is one of the people who is the energy, the energizer because he's 35, uh, 36 years old now. He's helping to form, and he actually became the first president of the Harlem Artists Guild with other artists. And the other artists are Augusta Savage, which I'll talk about in a couple of more uh, episodes, Charles Alston, Ramari Bearden, who I talked about in episode two uh, of this uh, series, Uh, And Gwendolyn Bennett are people that he worked with on this Harlem Artists Guild. And he also worked to improve issues that were being, you know, that were faced by African-Americans. And he worked to improve opportunities for African-American artists. You know, so a couple of years later, he was actually invited back to Fisk University. And they asked him to establish an art department he was like, of course, right? I mean, why wouldn't he? That's, uh, of course, sounds like a dream come true. So at 40 years old, uh, the next year, he became the first African-American president at Fisk University. He continued, even even with these honors and, and these uh, jobs, he continued to uh, educate himself. So he enrolled in a teacher's college at Columbia University in New York, and he earned a master's in art education. And then he helped establish the Carl Van Vechten Gallery at Fisk University. Of course, he wanted to influence, and he had influence, uh, regarding educating the segregated South by expanding uh, learning opportunities for those people, giving uh, documentation and or conversations that challenged uh, racial subjugation, right? That's We're still kind of doing that right now. But 1958, uh, unfortunately, um, he's, he's 59 years old, and uh, this was the year that Alta died. Of course, that's never a, a happy thing. And they had been together for 32 uh, years of marriage. So um, at this point he uh, continues on alone, and um, the next time we hear from him, he is in uh, it's 1963, and he's 64 years old. He's invited to attend the celebration on on the centennial of the um, Emancipation Proclamation by President John F. Uh, Kennedy. So you write 100 years. Uh, after um, the abolition of slavery or the Emancipation Proclamation. And so um, he was invited and and attended that. So then the next time we hear about him is uh, in 1966, where he was 67 years old, and um, he retired uh, from the Fisk University Art Department after leading the department since its creation. (laughs) <laughs> that is amazing. Okay. So in 1973, when he was 74 years old, he received an honorary doctorate from Fisk University and continued to lecture there until his death. In 1979, at 80 years old, he did die. So Aaron Douglas combined traditional African motifs with cubism and graphic design to create a unique and potent style of illustration during the Harlem Renaissance. He's widely considered to be the father of modern African-American art. So for our, um, our next individual that we're gonna talk about, Mr. Duncanson, we're gonna adjust our, <laughs> our viewer uh, because we're going back a few years. So we're going back into the days of slavery. So we were just in the 1920s, we're going back to the 1800s. Robert S. Duncanson was born in 1821, and that's 44 years before the abolition of slavery Okay, in the South. So now he was born in a place called Seneca County in upstate New York. That may be familiar to some. Seneca County, why does that sound familiar? Seneca Village was established in 1825 as a largely African-American community with homes, churches, schools, etc. It was ultimately seized by the state of New York under eminent domain, which gives the state the right to take private property for public use with you know, payment of compensation uh, to create Central Park. Now, this is a story for a different time but Seneca Village was the African-American village that was seized by New York City to create Central Park. That's where Robert S. Duncanson was born. However, his father, John Dean Duncanson, who was from Virginia and was a skilled carpenter, house painter, who was African and Scottish descent, and mom, Lucy Nichols, who was a free African-American from Cincinnati, Ohio, who was an amateur painter. Uh, I'm thinking because Mr. Mr. Duncanson uh, was part Scottish that he was free as well. Uh, and they mostly hung out in Canada, even though Robert was born in Seneca County. With his youth spent mostly or largely in Canada, of course, Robert moved to, <laughs> to Monroe, Michigan uh, where, with his family when he was a, a young man. And that was a rapidly growing Black community because his father, of course, was looking to work uh, on a consistent basis. So he went to this area that was up and coming, and they were very integral because they were uh, construction workers. They were um, doing those kinds of things. Now, uh, Robert of course, began working in the family business. And he was doing uh, ornate trim and signs. And so by the time he was 17 years old, which of course was uh, 1838, he had developed his own business. He was specializing in painting and glazing window trim. So that was his own little hustle, right? He had his own business. And, uh, And he was an entrepreneur and he did that for a couple of years. But he decided that, that he didn't want to do that, and he wanted to do uh, something uh, else. He wanted to paint landscapes, he, you know, like his mother. He didn't, want to, he didn't want to paint houses. He wanted to paint paintings. And uh, with this in mind, he moved to a little place called Mount Healthy, which uh, was a small and thriving neighborhood in Cincinnati, Ohio. Remember that's where Mom was from, Cincinnati. So he went. He went back there, and at this time, this little place was the kind of the center of culture and uh, abolitionist sentiment among free Black people. So yeah, that's a great place to go. Um, you know, he was born of free people, so uh, he's gonna go hang out and be around free people, because to not was uh, very dangerous, right? So of course, we uh, fast forward. Uh, not real fast, but now he's uh, around 21, so it's the next couple of years, 19 through 21, 1840, 1842. He's starting to put his business together, right? He's starting to, to work on content. So he initially starts to copy other popular type of art prints, but I guess he got tired of reproducing other people's stuff and moved on to painting original portraits of people, okay, individuals. He became interested in the printing process, which was uh, the new technology of the era, right? Now, the daguerreotype was the first publicly available. Photographic process widely used during the 1940s and 1950s. And this is what he started working on. So, this is another business venture that he worked inside of, right? Now, the process was they used an iodine sensitized silver plate and mercury vapor, right? You remember, you know, you see the pictures of them in the thing over their head and poof, (laughs) right? A daguerreotype. And a daguerreotype actually. Refers to the the process and the actual the outcome too. So the picture itself was also called a daguerreotype. Again, look that up. That's that's it's very uh, interesting if you if you like that kind of sciencey stuff. Now, of course, he was able. So he was he was working because you know that was the up and coming thing. So he was really able to build wealth, um, providing this service uh, for people. But he found, I guess what he really loved was uh, painting regional landscapes. But, you know, God bless him. He was good at that, too. One of his uh, early successes uh, happened to be uh, portraits of the Ohio River Valley, of course, which, you know, he's living there. And, of course, he exhibited these in uh, the Cincinnati area. So he was very soon... Uh, recognized as a leader in that area. Uh, he received support from uh, black individuals and and white abolitionists, so people in, in the fight, who were getting portraits done. And so, you know, they were featured in uh, paintings. He kind of modeled his work after the Hudson River School of Painting uh, in the sense that he wanted to include uh, romantic or untarnished images of America's natural landscapes. And since he was so good at painting landscapes, it worked. Right, many of the works that he had used, uh, you know, muted tones and portrayed wilderness scenes, and and they had different um, literary elements. Right, what's a literary element? That's like something from a book. Right, a character from a book or a scene from a book. Uh, those types of things or fantasy elements. Right, it could be like a rainbow or something like that. Those are fantasy elements but he would get those items from the different writers that he was involved with or influenced by because he's, he's interacting with these people. So he's taking things from their books and incorporating them into his paintings. He's 23, so he's very right, creative, busy. 1844, Cincinnati was the perfect ideal setting for him to work course it was a, a thriving hub of artistic expression and of course at this point um, his talent was you know recognized by critics and and publications and he was the man he was out he was doing it 27 what is considered to be his first significant work okay 1848 it's interesting because the abolitionist clergyman Right. Religious man, abolitionist clergyman, Charles Avery commissioned him, Duncanson, to paint a mine, you know, like where miners work, a mine. So the cliff mine at Lake Superior, that was the first significant painting. And they said from this era, I was like, dang, that was I mean, and you look at it, it's, it's, a, it's a good painting. Um, and so that was his first uh, work, cliff mine, Lake Superior. Three years later, he painted another area, another location. It's uh, Blue Hole floodwaters, Little Miami River. So that's the that's the area, right? The Blue Hole floodwaters, Little Miami River. Again, check out the uh, painting. Just Google that. So those two paintings. In, in the mind of the critics, basically solidified his status as one of the region's most important painters. Now, this year also brought enough work to be considered a wealthy man because he was the man to go to for portraits. And he was, of course, using proceeds and uh, doing different things to support the um, abolitionist <laughs> Uh, cause, which of course was anti-slavery cause, and so he had a lot of supporters, a lot of supporters. So I'm going I'm to talk about a lot more um, artwork, so please uh, check these out. He was commissioned by Nicholas Longworth, who was a wealthy abolitionist lawyer, who was again, um, integral in creating an a income stream for him. You know, they when when people of color weren't really getting work uh, like that, and so he was asked to create eight elaborate landscapes and two floral vignettes (laughs) to adorn, you know, decorate his estate, Belmont. So this wealthy abolitionist lawyer had an estate, Belmont. He was commissioned by Nicholas Longworth, who was a wealthy abolitionist lawyer, who was integral in creating an income stream well beyond Ohio. He was asked to create eight elaborate landscapes and two floral vignettes to adorn or decorate his estate, Belmont. Of course, um, you can uh, take a look at these works today by checking out the Taft Museum because the estate Belmont became the Taft Museum, which is now where those masterpieces are displayed. Their significance is demonstrated by being considered one of the biggest pre-Civil War domestic murals in the United States. And this was the largest and most lucrative venture of his career. And of course, he now had the money that financed his trip abroad. Now, how would he know? I'm sure he he doesn't know, of course, right? That his trip, this trip that he's about to take, the European Grand Tour, became something that every black American artist of import took part in. He was doing it for the first time. He was the first one. But every black artist that came after him, after this, did this. This was a significant thing. And you'll hear it over and over in these themes when I'm talking about these Black uh, American artists that each and every one of them spent time overseas. It's a little looser over there. It's not quite as tight. It's tight, but it's not quite as tight over there. The European Grand Tour is something, and again, I mentioned it already, uh, in the... Black artists previously talked about in KB's world and uh, was sort of a rite of passage for any artist that considered themselves a serious artist. Now, um, Robert uh, was the first to make this journey. He traveled with a fellow landscape artist, William Louis Sontag, and they took nine months and they went to England and France and Italy and at the end came back to the United States through Canada. Now, it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it, Robert was welcomed in Europe. He was tremendously affected and moved by what he experienced there and decided that he would travel there as often as he could. You know, you can you can understand. It's a place where you're loved and, and respected, and yeah, why wouldn't you want to live there, right? And And every time he traveled there... As you might expect, he would gain something new. He would learn something new that he would add or include to his work. So his work just got better and better because he was able to go and get new insights and get new things to add. And, and the community that welcomed him and elicited this response was made up of you know, abolitionists and aristocrats. He met uh, the renowned poet Alfred Lloyd Tennyson. Right, whose works you know, he's because he had books and poems, were often featured in uh, the paintings. Right, different maybe scenes from a book or uh, a character from uh, one of the books or something to that effect. Um, Robert also included uh, elements that he picked up as he traveled, you know, through Italy. The next featured work that he um, put out, landscape with rainbow incorporated uh, French, they call them attitudes, French attitudes attributed to one of his peers, a French artist by the name of Claude Lorraine. So uh, quite naturally, if you're spending time with intellectual artists and people who are committed opponents to slavery in Europe, this of course is going to support you or empower you to also work and uh, discuss political opinions on this matter. So he was able to freely discuss it, where, you know, in America, you know, they don't like to talk about stuff like that, but he could talk about it in Europe and actually express his feelings about it. And, of course, it it spurned and and encouraged and empowered his activism. So um, he began uh, donating paintings to abolitionist causes and personally participating in several demonstrations and activist rallies. So again, he's fairly young still. We're, we're up to 1861, which was uh, the start of the Civil War. He's only 40 years old, right? So not really young enough to fight, but he could, uh, he could contribute right in his way. And so just as the war broke out, Robert created what most would consider his magnum opus. What? What is a magnum opus, you have? <laughs> so a magnum opus is regarded as the most important work of an artist or writer. Now, for Duncanson, the title work, his magnum opus, is called Land of the Lotus Eaters. Again, please check it out. It was inspired by both Tennyson, the writer, and Homer, okay? And again, check out these writers. Now, the painting presents with a large landscape that's populated with blacks attending to the needs of white soldiers. Like, what? And the work was thought to be prescient, right? Looking forward, looking ahead. So a prescient masterpiece of the struggle to save the Union and end slavery. So the war had just started, but what he is painting was that the black people would be available to take care of the Union soldiers because we want to make sure keep you healthy and get you back out there fighting for us, because that was how he was seeing it. Now, unfortunately for Robert, (laughs) uh, the racial and economic tensions of the time left very little room or comfort to exhibit his work because America was not having it. They were not. So he left the country, landing first in Montreal, Canada, and then, of course, heading back to Europe once more. Not as luck would have it, but just so happened that uh, the European artistic and aristocratic community were welcoming. And and they loved his... uh, his art. Now, there was a specific mention that Queen Elizabeth, um, yes, the one who just uh, passed in September of 2022, um, was an admirer of uh, his work and actually had some items. Not, They didn't really note uh, which particular items uh, she had purchased, but that she had purchased some of his works. Uh, and the painting, Land of the Lotus Eaters, was actually um, purchased uh, by the king of Sweden he uh, currently owns that now during this time of course he's he's in Europe and he's over there, so it was a perfect time and he became enchanted with his, uh, with the other side of his heritage, right? His father was was Scottish, so he started um, going to the Scottish Highlands. You know, his focus basically continued from then on, right? Because why wouldn't it? <laughs> That's his, his history. And he ended up creating, of course, uh, an amazing series of landscapes while traveling well, between the United States and Europe, but for sure, uh, while he was um, painting in Europe or in um, Scotland. Uh, now, he seemed to be in fairly good health, but it, it just says that he started to suffer from dementia. And he was you know, still actually fairly young because in uh, 1871, he's 50 years old. This probably would be the year of his final masterwork because this is where he Delivered a painting called Ellen's Isle Loch Katrine. So remember, Scottish. So Isle Island, um, Loch Lake, right? So um, it was. So the painting was Ellen's Isle Loch Katrine. So that's where he's painting, and so that was his last, what was considered to be his last uh, masterpiece that he provided. From that point, his condition, dementia, had had worsened, and that he was uh, ultimately put in a sanitarium in Detroit, Michigan, after he had a, a fairly violent seizure, and then uh, went ahead and um, passed on uh, December 21st, uh, 1872. Now, Robert's career, right, he began his career with the support of philanthropic uh, abolitionists. Um, he uh, took uh, and used fame, the fame that he acquired to support the abolitionist cause, and of course, in doing so, became the first African-American landscape artist to earn truly international acclaim. Now, Duncanson's works are now displayed throughout the United States, England, and Scotland. And of course, the Taft Museum of Art annually recognizes contemporary creations of African-Americans through the Duncanson Artist-in-Residence Program. Now, you guys may also uh, remember and recognize that you actually saw one of Duncanson's paintings. January 20th, 2021, President Joe Biden and first woman of color, Vice President Kamala Harris, accepted a gift of artwork, of course, it's on loan <laughs> uh, in the form of Duncanson's Landscape with Rainbow. Okay, Landscape with Rainbow. It's the very first painting by a black artist to hang in the White House. And of course, we know this was two weeks after the Confederate flag carrying mob <laughs> stormed D.C. Duncanson uh, painted the painting, it was during the Civil War era. And it was a rare, radical symbol of hope, right? It's a rainbow. And and the Bidens actually selected it for similar reasons. Uh, Jill Biden was the one who chose that uh, to hang there. These two artists, along with all of the artists highlighted on tour, can be read about in KB's Black History, Volume 1, my book, by yours truly, me. Go to lulu.com and type in KB's Black Heritage, Volume 1, by K Baker. That's K-A-Y-E, in the search bar. And voila, my book will appear for your reading enjoyment. Please like, follow, and subscribe to my world, KB's world, that is, wherever you get your podcasts so that you will be notified when I introduce you to the next two amazing Black American artists. Please always remember, if you want to be exposed to relevant education and lifelong knowledge presented the only way I know how, join me next time in KB's World. Thank you.